chromosome. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. It's time now for the People's War Radio Show, where we do talk about the main virus. And that is colonialism. Here on the People's War Radio Show, we talk with healthcare workers, activists, revolutionaries, authors, teachers, and regular people from the African community. We aim to bring you an African internationalist analysis on all things important to winning our freedom from colonialism. The root of all our problems. Uhuru, welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the contradictions of food insecurity in the African community and other oppressed communities in the United States. This is just one of the reasons we refer to the pandemic as the colonial virus. According to the Journal of Nutrition, food insecurity is understood as the limited or uncertain availability of nutritionally adequate and safe foods, or limited or uncertain ability to acquire acceptable foods in socially acceptable ways. Nearly 40% of black children in the U.S., are food insecure. This is almost twice the rate of white children. A symptom of the larger colonial oppression of African people in the U.S., food insecurity has serious political and economic effects on the African community. The African community has often been slandered for its high rates of diet-related illnesses, including hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, and other issues. However, all of these issues are the direct result of food insecurity. Food insecurity also influences heightened rates of horizontal violence in African communities, referred to by the colonial media as black-on-black crime. African communities are often referred to by the outdated term that has been imposed on the black community from the outside, food desert. However, one organizer for food justice, Karen Washington, has suggested the use of another term to understand intentional and unevenly structured access to healthy and affordable food that African people in the U.S. endure, food apartheid. Everyday people have come together to overturn the contradictions of food insecurity. Throughout the United States and internationally, African, Mexican, indigenous, and other colonized and oppressed communities have been organizing community gardens, farmers markets, urban food cooperatives, and other grassroots solutions to the problems. In today's episode of the People's War Radio Show, we will hear about a new farmer's market created in the African community of North St. Louis and hopefully provide information and inspiration to our listeners who may want to organize a similar project in their communities. The One Africa, One Nation Marketplace in St. Louis is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization of which Black Power 96 FM Radio in St. Petersburg is also a project. We are excited about this new sister project that's creating a collective community-driven solution to the serious issue of food and resources in our community. To discuss this with us today, we have Tachara Masimba, and Marissa Martinez, organizers of the One Africa, One Nation Farmers Market. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uhuru, thank you for having me. Uh Appreciate being here. This is T'Chara. 
Yeah, Horo, Horo Tachara, welcome back to the People's World Radio Show. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, the, the tables have turned. <laughs> so, Tachara, the farmer's market that you all have organized is located in the 21st Ward of North St. Louis, about five miles from where Mike Brown was killed by police in Ferguson, prompting nationwide protests in 2014. Tell us. What are the conditions of life for Africans in North St. Louis? Yeah, that is a um, you know a real profound question and a real profound issue uh, because the conditions, are they, although they are not unlike conditions that you see African people face everywhere, they have a special kind of you know tint and tone in St. Louis. Um, you know, one of the things that um, is most obvious to people who come there is that you have, you know, scores and scores of vacant and abandoned buildings um, and and acres and acres in some cases of just empty lots, you know, uh, in the midst of uh, really, really impoverished communities. And, uh, you know, at one point, the uh, statistics said that there were 24, 25,000 or so vacant and abandoned uh, properties in North St. You know, in St. Louis, primarily in North St. Louis, where the black community resides. And about half of those 25,000 properties were owned by this entity referred to as the LRA, a Land Reutilization Authority, which came into existence in 1972 uh, to, to bank properties, uh, primarily lost by the African community, so that when the market conditions were right, were ripe or ripe, you could say, uh, those properties would be turned over to so-called developers who uh, we know uh, gentrify the black community as a condition for their development. So you see that really stark and obvious kind of uh, poverty through the vacant and abandoned properties. And, uh, you know, we looked at the numbers and about 30 percent of the population after taxes lives on about five dollars a day. Um, And in some places uh, where the zip code may differ uh, only by a few miles. You have a life expectancy that differs as much as 18 years. If you are African, you die 18 years earlier, you know, simply uh, by a few zip codes. So, um, you know, this is these are the conditions that we see. Immense imposed poverty on the black community. Um, And that's not an accident. You know, seven hundred million dollars or so in the last decade have gone to gentrifying developers and corporations. This is tax money that would normally go uh, to the schools. And in fact, uh, because this tax money have been drained from black schools in North St. Louis and given to these corporations and developers who don't develop anything and who don't create livable livable wages, uh, what has resulted is that seven predominantly black schools in North St. Louis have just been closed down as a result of, uh, you know, looting the schools, just like the black community in general is looted. So I would say these are the most salient uh, kinds of conditions. Yeah, wow, that's that's devastating. This, but uh, just the last thing you were saying about the schools is is uh, absolutely horrifying. Um, to Char, as we noted, the African working class um, community organizers in the African working class community have begun to reject the term "food desert" for the term "food apartheid." Why do you find this term to be much better to describe the conditions for the African community in North St. Louis? Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I said, but I just really want to thank uh, you know both of uh, the hosts here, Mwambi and uh, Matsumela, and uh, the entire Black Power '96 um, you know team for having us on today. And uh, it was referenced earlier, you know, in kind of coded way, but I used to host this show and uh what you all have done to it is just in- done with it is incredible so i'm so happy that we are able to be back uh on the other side of the table so you know people uh and we've united with it people prefer oftentimes the use of the term food apartheid over food desert because as i think was uh the definition that was given earlier or the description that was given earlier it it, it infers you know uh intentionality, or at least it infers that uh, there is a relationship. There's, uh, you know, there's somebody and something that is responsible uh, for the uh, lack of food and uh, the, uh, you know, sure, it is a desert, but there's something and somebody responsible for it. And, uh, you know, it's called a food apartheid by many because it's a recognition that it is the, you know, capitalist economy 
uh, built on colonialism that's responsible for uh, the fact that we don't have grocery stores in the black community. It's responsible for the fact that um, what we do have stores, you know, you can only get potato chips and candy and sodas, you know, uh, just uh, these uh, retail, these small shops where the people just uh, feed off of the, uh, you know, carcass, dead, dying carcass of the black community uh, by selling us filth. You know, and this is what this movement uh, to create, you know, food production and distribution in the black community is about overturning. And, you know, we even, uh, you know, we unite with the people around the use of the term food apartheid, but even that is not uh, as clear, clear as it could be because uh, we know that while like people recognize South Africa as apartheid, uh, we live in a democratic non-apartheid uh, form of capital under a democratic non-apartheid form of capitalism that still uh, results in the same kind of conditions that, you know, African people in, in, in South Africa face under formal apartheid. So, you know, apartheid is one form of the capitalist, you know, state and, uh, and uh, the democracy that we uh, are under here is another form of the state, but it still has the same result. You know, and it's really the fact that, you know, we are a colonized population that's responsible for the fact that we live in these food deserts and, and that there's generally an economic embargo placed on the African community and all of our resources are stolen and uh, looted daily. That's colonialism that's responsible for it. So that is really even actually a better descriptor, but we do unite with people who uh, use the term food apartheid. Uhuru, Uhuru, Marissa, welcome to the show. Uhuru, thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Hey, it's great to have you on. And I know that you've got a long history in working in different elements of food service, especially to African and oppressed communities. So what are some of the effects of food insecurity on African people and other oppressed communities in North St. Louis and elsewhere? So, yeah, St. Louis has has the seventh highest disparity in household income between black and white. In the region, St. Louis American uh, newspaper had stated that one fifth of African families have a net worth of zero or below and 75 percent have less than 10,000 for retirement. And in comparison, the median white assets are 134,000. And uh, St. Louis is number seven among 50 largest uh, large metro areas in uh, the United States. And as a result, uh, the black community uh, is facing um, deep poverty in the, in in St. Louis, and uh, you know we we know that um, this is uh, this is uh, creating grave health dip- disparities, and it's connected to the a lack of economic um, activity in the area, and and this is looting the black community, and they don't get to enjoy uh, the results of their hard work and labor. And, uh, you know, they're they're stuck with uh, heart conditions, you know, um, diabetes, uh, obesity, uh, you know, they can't uh, um, eat, you know, have access to healthy foods. And yet they're, you know, required to, um, you know, live live in these conditions of under immense stress Uh, and and many other colonized communities around the world are uh, dealing with the same kind of um, apartheid uh, from their own resources. So, you know, I think the uh, the market is, is going to change a lot of that for her. Uhuru, thank you, Marissa. Tachara, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the access to food for African families in your community? Well, um, I don't know, you know, specifically uh, what it may have done uh, very different that, uh, you know, that we didn't experience either uh, previously. But I think one thing is that uh, we saw firsthand how vulnerable uh, we are as a people, how vulnerable we are as a community to uh, not only food, uh, a lack of healthy food and a lack lack of uh, food in close proximity, but how vulnerable we are to uh, having no access to food, to literally being starved. Uh, if the, you know, generalist, uh, general capitalist economy uh, were for whatever reason to determine that we could not 
uh, have any access to food. You know, we have no control over the distribution of our food. We have no control over the production of our food. And uh, that was a, you know, like serious, uh, visceral kind of fear that uh, we felt. And I know I felt at the height of COVID when, you know, every seemed like every week, some, uh, some you know, another African I know uh, was dying from COVID. And, uh, you know, the grocery stores were closing down and, you know, every all the prices of everything were shooting up high and you couldn't get a hold of certain products. And it was dangerous to go outside, to go to the grocery store, um, to work in any kind of uh, public setting. It was a real scary thing. And it just really brought home how vulnerable we are to uh, no, uh, having no access to food at all. So um, I think that the market, the One Africa, One Nation farmers market and, the, you know, this general movement uh, to control food production and distribution, uh, to have pop up markets. And uh, this whole movement to eat uh, healthier diets and to create and generate black businesses is a, a serious uh, response to the fact that uh, as a population, we don't control the food, clothing and housing in our community and that we have to do that. And that is uh, why we not just now, but the African People's Education and Defense Fund has uh, for the last 25 years been creating programs to close the disparities in health, health care, education, economics, uh, with the focus on African self-determination. You're listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Tachara Masimba and Marissa Martinez. Uhuru, Tachara. Now, the One Africa, One Nation Farmer's Market. What can you tell us about how the farmer's market came into existence? Yeah, thank you, uh, Cameron Matsumela. The, uh, as I alluded to a little bit a, a second ago, is the African People's Education and Defense Fund is a nonprofit of the Uhuru movement created about 25 years ago, and it's, cu- it's currently under the leadership of a dynamic African woman by the name of Onazene Ishitela, who uh, leads not only uh, the work of APEDF here in the U.S., but leads the economic institutions of the Uhuru movement all over the world. And uh, it was created to um, defend, and this is the literal mission, to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and to address the grave disparities in health, healthcare, education, and economics. And that's a fancy way of us saying what we've been saying here all along is that uh, somebody else controls our economy. And as a consequence, we suffer in terms of every, in every aspect of life. We suffer in health and healthcare. We saw that uh, become very pronounced during COVID, you know, where uh, it seemed like any African that went to the hospital died uh, from what was done directly to us in the hospital. And if we didn't go to the hospital, we were, of course, uh, more vulnerable and susceptible to uh, death by the hands of COVID, you know, which is a disease created, you know, from a capitalist economy that can't uh, address healthcare. So, you know, uh, APEDF brought uh, its programs and institutions in existence to deal with these disparities and to ensure that we have self-determination over every aspect of our lives. And so uh, we, in addition to uh, the One African, One Nation Farmers Market, that uh, we have here today. Um, APEDF created uh, markets uh, for the last 15 years throughout in in various parts of the country, in addition to like furniture stores and other institutions. And so we worked uh, as a committee. We brought a committee together under owners and they should tell us leadership. We applied for a USDA grant uh, and we received that grant and we utilized uh, much of the model that we had already created for the last 15 years in APEDF and uh, didn't just create a market as we've done in the past, but created a farmer's market, a black farmer's market, so that we'll have black growers and uh, black, black farmers from throughout the region uh, come and sell fresh produce in the black community. And then we've developed all kinds of other programs and institutions and economic development programs to complement the farmer's market so that we can really gain control. The black community, the African community can really gain control over food production and distribution in every aspect of our lives and build an economy. 
So I want uh, before I just want to let people know if they want to find out more information, you can check out the website at oneafricamarket.com, oneafricamarket.com. Uhuru. Uhuru to charge. The farmer's market operates at a Gary Brooks community garden. Can you tell us who Gary Brooks is? And can you tell us about the garden and what it means in the struggle to overturn the conditions that Africans are forced to endure in North St. Louis? Yeah, Gary Brooks, um, and we call him Mr. Gary or Mr. Brooks. You know, he's an African man in his late 70s. He's been uh, in the community in St. Louis where we are bi- we built the One African One Nation Farmer's Market. Um, and it's worth to, it's worth saying that, well, I, I guess I could say this in the midst of answering the question. When uh, owners of Nation tell the president of the board of APDF got to St. Louis um, uh, under the leadership of Chairman O'Malley Ishtella, you know, who's a founder of the Afro movement following Ferguson, we, uh, she identified a building that had been vacant, you know, we think for over a decade and uh, led the renovation of their project uh, over, you know, like a nine month period uh, when in the dead of winter, there was no heat and the midst of summer, there was no air, no bathrooms, uh, no security right in the heart of the African community in the poorest sector of the African community. And uh, there was this older man, uh, Gary Brooks, who lived right down the street and he would come and he would fix a breakfast from time to time. He put bars up you know, on the windows and doors to provide an element of security. Uh, you know, he just helped wherever he could, he could and whenever he could. And the thing about it was he was so generous, but uh, at the same time, he was very angry because, you know, he saw the immense poverty. He saw the contradictions we refer to as black and black crime. He saw the street walkers, you know, who had no other economy. Uh, but to street walk and to, you know, also a byproduct of the drug economy that had been imposed on us by the U.S. government. And he couldn't explain these. So, you know, there was an element of anger uh, also with his kindness. But uh, he he became part of this project. And uh, Ona Zanesha was able to win him. Uh, and, you know, he is a guru in terms of all things construction and you know, rehab and all things nature, you know, and he can tell you, he can look at, uh, you know, uh, outdoors, trees and gardens, and he can uh, identify a whole ecosystem happening right under your noses when you won't see it at all. At least I don't see it at all. And he can identify that entire ecosystem, you know, and he's been instrumental in helping us develop a vision for uh, the One African Nation Farmers Market, for the uh, outdoor event space that we house it in and for the garden that is right next door to his house that we named after him, the one, uh, the uh, Gary Brooks Black Power Community Garden. He's just a real uh, symbol, a real inspiration and a real worker, you know, during COVID. He he and his brother and his uh, nephew and niece, they came out in the height of COVID, you know, when nobody wanted to come outdoors. And they tended to the garden. They developed the garden, built garden beds. And when we came, finally came back outdoors, you know, came back outside, returned to the Uhura house, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we saw this beautiful, flourishing garden. That's Mr. Gary Brooks. That was powerful. Uhura, Uhura, Marissa, you're the market manager. You also have a long history of food services to working class and colonized communities. How does this project differ from food work that you've done in the past? Also, what does this project mean to you? Yes. Well, that, that is a, that's a big question. I've enjoyed working alongside other African and, and indigenous and Mexican workers. Um, you know, it's catering. A lot of that, a lot of that was, um, you know, having to uh, set up buffets for corporations and things like that. And, you know, you could always see the contradictions of the workers and how hard they work and them struggling to just uh, keep a roof over their heads and provide for their families and not get much in return. And uh, we could be easily replaced. If we weren't uh, available, somebody else would fit it, would come in and take our position. And um, what this this means to me is uh, a, a truly... Um, it's, it's just such practical, revolutionary work be in, in progress and uh, being able to um, forward uh, such a vision on a, on a daily 
and a minute by minute basis and talking to the people, seeing what people are going through and being able to provide a short term and long term solution to what people are facing. And, and this is about feeding, clo- um, feeding, housing and clothing ourselves with a economy that is uh, rooted uh, in the people. And this is a people's market. So to be a part of something like that is is a is a dream come true. It means that I don't have to work in a capitalist position and I can help to forward a more equitable socialist economy that's just basic common sense food, great food. So much wonderful uh, creativity goes into uh, a project like this and the food that you can create and the gardens and the lives that you can um, create and inspire. So it's just really powerful stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So on that note, Marissa, you are indigenous with family origins from Mexico. The United States maintains a deeply parasitic relationship with Mexico and other countries in Latin America. Hundreds of billions of dollars are relegated annually to grow food for the white colonial economy under inhumane conditions. People from Mexico and Latin America labor for U.S. corporations on both sides of the colonial border for very little pay. Did this impact your decision to get involved in the One African One Nation marketplace? And do you see the people-to-people farmers markets approach as a positive move away from exploitative big agribusiness? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I did. I did. I, you know, I'm involved in this because uh, I'm in solidarity with African self-determination and liberation. And we know that self-determination is the highest form of democracy. And so through this, you know, through this movement and the and the information that I received while working, you know, in this in this capacity, uh, you know, I can connect all the dots, um, like I, I, I never did before. And, um, you know, basically we're, I'm seeing self-determination. I'm seeing a response from the people to rising up against oppression and genocide and police, uh, you know, colonial violence. I'm seeing all of this as a, re- a positive response that is going to uh, reverse and overturn all of the all of the misery, uh, the centuries of misery, and and you can't bottle something that like that up. You can't just it's going to it's going to grow. It's going to go beyond any limitations that were imposed on the people. Uh, and this market has that uh, ability to do that. This is a vehicle for a transformation in in uh, St. Louis and around the world. Uhuru Tachara. A lot of people are looking for ways to organize community gardens, farmer markets, and food co-ops in their communities. How did you get the resources for this project? Thank you, Muami. I would say that uh, first and foremost, the resources from this project, I would say, were uh, and are the you know 25 years of uh, experience and dedication and commitment by the African People's Education and Defense Fund, and the nearly 50 years of uh, work by the Uhuru movement at large, you know, under the leadership of its chair, Omali Ishitela, you know, to uh, fight for African self-determination in every aspect of life, you know, for the, since the uh, late 1960s, uh, at the height of the uh, Black Revolution of the 1960s. And uh, in this case, you know, with the One Africa, One Nation Farmers Market located here in St. Louis, we actually received a grant from the USDA but it's worth saying that prior to that, you know, and still the Uhuru movement, at APEDF uh, does uh, outdoor markets, One Africa, One Nation markets, you know, in Philadelphia and in St. Petersburg, Florida. We have a thriving pie business in several cities. We have uh, furniture stores and, you know, community centers that we refer to as the Uhuru House, uh, which also function as banquet halls and with offices. And, you know, so we've, Built and are building a, uh, a garment factory in uh, South, what is referred to as South Africa or occupied Azania, as we call it. You know, so uh, this was the primary resource, and this uh, was the uh, leading mechanism, you know, for uh, the One Africa, One Nation farmers market. Uh, so, as an extension of that work, as I stated earlier, we got together a committee. Marissa was part of that committee, 
and Zay, uh, my, my Simba was part of that committee working under deputy chair's leadership. Um, uh, we applied for a grant and then we received a grant from the USDA, uh, United States Department of Agriculture. And uh, that allowed us to have a certain kind of, you know, available funding to do the market. And, uh, we, you know, we administered a grant and uh, we just continued uh, with some modifications, the kinds of uh, markets, outdoor markets that we've been doing for the last 15 years. So I just really want people to know that if you want to start an outdoor market, one Africa, you know, an outdoor market or a farmer's market, or you want to organize growers, you know, people who have who grow food in their backyards or even want to fight for uh, a return of property and land back to the community so that uh, people can be free and able to uh, create community gardens. You know, if you want to organize farmers, black farmers from uh, your local city or region, you know, it may be a difficult task to identify them at first, but you can uh, just start where you are to, and work to build a movement to really uh, fight, you know, this thing we're referring to as food apartheid, and you don't have to wait on the USDA. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Tachara Matsimba and Marissa Martinez. Marissa, you all just held your first market, the kickoff of the summer season, on June 5th, 2021. Tell us, how did it go? What went on and how did the community receive it? Yes. Oh, it was amazing. Uh, it was so cool to, to just uh, watch all the tents go up. And as the vendors were coming in, they would, uh, they would find a spot and start putting their, uh, their boots together and all their product. And it, lo- it was so colorful and uh, so many amazing uh, products I went around all of the boots and uh, just um, took my time uh, seeing what, you know, what they had. And, uh, you know, I, I got some items and um, uh, the, the, uh, the program was great. Uh, all of the speakers and the entertainment. I mean, it was uh, it was very profound and uh, uh, just a, a feeling of self-determination and um, um, accomplishment. And that we were definitely doing something uh, to change the conditions that the people are facing um, and that and that we can do this. Like the confidence, you know, had risen, you know, because people knew that it took, you know, a little a little bit of uh, organizing and putting things together, um, finding the people in the community. And uh, and and then we have a market and, and, and we know that. The Uhura Movement has done markets before, so we knew uh, that we could do this. But when other people have maybe not experienced that and and they're there, that is where the magic was. The magic was when people were picking out the, the vegetables that they wanted to take uh, with them and uh, the kids volunteering and the dancing and, the, you know, the parents and the children uh, matching outfits. And it's just like, um, just people were really, uh, you know, happy to be there. And, um, you know, it it was just exciting. And I was really happy to be a part of that. Um, And I look forward to the next market. T'Chara, how'd it go? Yeah, I don't know how much I can add to that. You know, uh, it was you know, there are a lot of adjectives that um, Marissa kind of brought to mind and used herself, but it was just a beautiful, bright, sunny day, you know, filled with color. She used the word colorful, uh, beautiful color, uh, just joy um, experienced by children and adults. You know, everybody felt free. And what it reminded me of was, uh, you know, what the black community is at our best and what our communities can be under the right conditions. You just saw immense uh, joy and, uh, you know, camaraderie and fun and relationship uh, building everywhere. It was a really joyous thing. We had a DJ uh, who was playing, you know, just the profound, most profound uh, music in the Black tradition. And, you know, we had wonderful presenters and speakers 
uh, and artists, you know, giving, you know, rousing political speeches and uh, beautiful songs and poetry and, you know, rapping uh, the most profound, uh, talented rappers, you know, who had a very serious message, you know, that they were even honing uh, through this process of working with uh, the Uhuru movement and the One African One Nation Farmers Market. People were spending money, you know, and uh, I think that's, you know, somebody in Zay who is our, our recruitment coordinator, I think she said that people uh, felt, you know, politically uh, inspired to spend money, you know, and that they recognize the uh, significance of this. And uh, every, you know, all of the vendors did well, I think. And uh, it was just a really, really profound day. Mr. Gary Brooks, who we talked about earlier, you know, he was uh, there, you know, giving uh, education to people, uh, helping them understand, you know, the uh, beauty of nature and gardening and et cetera. We had elected officials there who came out and gave, you know, very powerful uh, statements of unity with the work that we do and uh, just to have the community out. And then one of the things that really stood out to me was that you had uh, all of these these several vendors who uh, had their, in most cases, women who had their daughters, and in one case, you know, granddaughters, uh, teaching them uh, how to operate a business. And in fact, uh, one mother had a, a st- you know, she was a vendor herself and her daughter had her own table. There was another uh, a, a couple who had a daughter who, you know, they had, th- this was her lemonade stand. You know, they made that very clear. We even wanted to bring them on to an interview. And, uh, you know, she said, this is not my business. I, it's the daughter's business. You know, had another mother. She did the same thing. She had an older daughter. She was teaching the business that had been passed down to her from her mother. So this is now the third generation of business owners. We had another, uh, you know, woman uh, who had her grandchildren, as Marissa kind of alluded to. They had these beautiful yellow uh, tutus. I think that would be the correct term for it. Uh, that they were wearing and uh, it matched the uh, the stand, you know, the vendor stand that had this bright yellow, you know, kind of packaging. And it was just a wonderful day. Children were playing in the streets, uh, just running to and fro, you know, freely without any kind of worry in the world. We had a children's circle there. We had uh, community members who lived on the street that we blocked off and, you know, where the uh, outdoor market space is, who live right behind it, who... Uh, set up and were vending, you know, from their front yard, uh, you know, selling fried rice. And he said, you know, rice is not just for Chinese people. And I want to start my business and I'm going to sell my fried rice. It was just very profound. We did, uh, you know, we went out onto the uh, street uh, intersection, into the intersection, and we gave out flyers to passing cars, you know, as people were slowing down, trying, you know, who may not have known what was going on, trying to figure out what was going on, almost having accidents. We were right there giving them flyers, telling them why they needed to be there. We had childcare, we had performers and we got black businesses and we're starting this farmer's market. And it was just an extraordinary event. Wow. Wow. That sounds great. That sounds great. That sounds amazing. To chart, horizontal violence in the African community is the outgrowth of colonial violence that the community faces. In North St. Louis, colonial violence is high, and therefore horizontal violence is also high. What ways can things like this farmer's market, community gardens, and other efforts overturn these conditions for African communities in St. Louis and elsewhere? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, you talked about this thing called horizontal violence. And, uh, you know, in the Uhura movement, we identify, you know, two forms of violence. You know, there's horizontal violence, which is violence that comes from above, or violence that comes down from a system uh, that, you know, operates and exists at our expense and which requires violence for its uh, ongoing, you know, um, perpetual, you know, looting and theft of our community. It's a form of violence that is uh, the most severe uh, form of violence that cannot be easily resolved, you know, through persuasion. And then you have vertical violence, I mean, horizontal violence or violence from, you know, your peers or violence from within the African community that is a symptom, a consequence of living under 
vertical violence, a violence from the state, violence from, you know, a colonial state that is uh, built, you know, whose economy is created at our expense. And so uh, we recognize that. And just today, uh, yesterday, you know, I had a meeting uh, with a prominent figure in St. Louis. And, you know, he said, uh, well, what about security? You know, aren't you afraid? And uh, with all of the work that you're doing and the development that you're doing, shouldn't we have more black police, uh, more police? And there's a black police union, you know, by the way, wouldn't that be progressive? And, you know, the thing is that uh, we uh, recognize that the city of St. Louis is an example. You know, the, uh, it is a city where gentrification is knocking, as always, really, it's knocking at the door of the black community. Population displacement is knocking at the door of the black community. You have, uh, a, you know, recently uh, the Board of Aldermen had uh, voted to have a, a spy planes owned by a private billionaire you know, fly over the black community and record everything we do up for up to 18 hours a day. Uh, the alderman in the ward where we operate, you know, he has gone, come out, brought the police to do police drills, you know, right in the heart of a residential community to intimidate the people. 50, 50 to 60 percent of the entire general budget of the city uh, goes, goes toward policing the black community, you know, prisons packed, jails packed. Uh, unlivable conditions in the jails. There were recently, you know, a series of riots and rebellions, I should say, in the uh, jails and prisons in the St. Louis area. You know, there's just extreme hor uh, vertical violence that happens to the black community. And uh, the horizontal violence is a result, you know. So what we're doing is creating uh, an economy so that people don't have to starve. But it's not just any economy, it's an economy that contends with the economy that bleeds us dry, that takes all of our tax money, that turns it over to developers who don't develop anything, you know, who become slumlords, who buy some, in some cases, they acquire thousands of properties with millions of dollars of tax breaks to get them. And they just sit on those properties and uh, let them rot while they work uh, the politicians over to try to get them to pass legislation to gentrify us on out of the community so that they can then redevelop for higher property values, you know, tax money that goes to the corporations who don't provide any kind of jobs for us, certainly not livable wages for us, you know. And so what we're doing is creating the, an economy, but we're not doing it by ourselves. We're engaging the people and creating an economy. And that's what we saw during the first one Africa, one nation farmers market. The people were engaged uh, in starting businesses for themselves, but they recognized the political significance of it and that they were part of a larger project to uh, fight for the uh, existence and the future of the black community by building an economy that can ensure that our children can have a future. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that, Tachara. Now, you already alluded to this, but let's get a little deeper. Your community is under the radar for multiple gentrification schemes by big land developers. Africans throughout the U.S. are suffering from similar conditions. How can these efforts provide a needed front against the waves of gentrification attacking our community? Yeah, one of the things that, uh, you know, we haven't said is that uh, as a project of APEDF, the One Africa, One Nation Farmers Market, you know, that we've, uh, we're discussing today is also part of uh, a project, larger project called the Black Power Blueprint. And it is an economic development project where, you know, we're purchasing and renovating buildings and properties, uh, creating a business incubator, a women's health center, just developed, you know, a, uh, in a Huru house, which is a, you know, a community center and rental space. For families and communities was where we demolished two buildings had, that had been vacant for 30 years and uh, created the uh, outdoor event space that uh, the one that, you know, contains and houses the One Africa One Nation Marketplace. Uh, we re are renovating a commercial kitchen that will also serve as a bakery and uh, function as a uh, workforce uh, program for people getting home from prison and who want culinary skills and who also be housed in, you know, the fourplex housing uh, that we just renovated and any additional housing that we may renovate. So it's the, it, we have this project referred to as the Black Power, uh, Black Power Blueprint, and we refer to it as an anti-gentrification campaign. 
because, you know, as I stated, and mo- many of the listeners will know that uh, we live in a colonial capitalist parasitic economy that extracts the wealth and value from our communities in a thousand different ways every day, you know, uh, visible and uh, not so visible to the people. And uh, what we, we've said is that this farmer's market, the one African one nation farmer's market as a part of the Black Power Blueprint is an anti-gentrification economic development campaign. We are actually contending with an economy uh, that extracts value from us every day and results in poverty and immiseration for the vast majority of Black people. And uh, we are contending with that economy. And that's a real thing because uh, every piece of property that uh, the Black Power Blueprint acquires or that we help uh, the community acquire is a piece of property that the city officials uh, and developers want. You know, for these so-called developers and corporations, they want to give this property to them. And the LRA land bank that we discussed, which has, you know, at any given point may have 12,000 or so properties. It exists to turn our property over, our stolen property, lost property, looted property over to these gentrifying developers. And so we are in direct contention with that. And whenever you fight over material resources and you fight for those resources to go uh, to the African working class in particular, then you see that there's a contest uh, for those resources. There's a contest for that land. There's a contest for the tax dollars. Uh, it's either the people, the African working class, the people, or it's the developers. It's, it is either the people or it is the politicians who work for the developers. And we are fighting for the people to have control of the land. We're saying that we should have backyard gardens. We should have uh, you know, the ability to renovate the houses that are vacant and decaying. Uh, we should be able to control food production and, and transform these empty lots into, you know, flourishing uh, gardens and, 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 you know, places to grow food and vegetables. And then we should create markets where we can sell it among ourselves and to anybody else who wants to buy. So that's what we're up against. It is an anti-gentrification development program that we part of the Black Power Blueprint Project. Marissa, lastly, what are some takeaways other people interested in doing what y'all are doing should consider? Yes, uh, I would say um, to start having some meetings, uh, finding out uh, other people that are interested, or even um, starting uh, community gardens. Uh, le- you know, learning how to um, how to grow. Uh, vegetables and uh, finding out what other uh, kind of resources are, are available, being able to educate um, yourself and, and others of how to grow food and um, start out small with, a, you can, you can build a farmer's market um, starting out small. You can even have a farmer's market in a um, grocery store parking lot or even a dollar store parking lot or a park or a church parking lot. Uh, it could be, um, somebody's donating some, some air, you know, some, some private property perhaps. Uh, but, but, uh, being able to address food, um, insecurities and food apartheid, as well as lack of economic, um, activity, uh, is fundamental and, uh, it's everyone's right. This is a democratic right to be able to feed clothes and house yourself and your family and your community. So this is an excellent model to, to institute all of that together um, and make it a beautiful, uh, you know, resistance project. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, appreciate that. Um, Tachara, uh, can you answer that question as well? Um, what are some takeaways other people interested in doing what y'all are doing to consider? Yeah, I think Marissa laid some good stuff out. So I'll just kind of um, add some different things from a di- little bit different angle, uh, which she, you know, I know is uh, complete unity with because it's something that we do. I think that, you know, as we as people do this, that they should do it uh, explicitly, you know, in the interest of the majority of uh, black workers and uh, poor people uh, explicitly. Because uh, as an example, we have an alderman here who you know received nearly 200 uh, over 200 properties from uh, the LRA land reutilization authority that I spoke about earlier 
you know, and they get they use they get these uh, properties, you know, for themselves and a small handful of their connected friends. Uh, another older person, as an example, same thing. You know, he is buying a property, uh, just letting it sit and rot, you know, filled with litter and uh, overgrown weeds. You know, uh, both of them anticipating that uh, gentrification will come uh, and uh, drive the values of those properties up and then they can become wealthy. And as a consequence of that hope, that desire, those aspirations, they attack the people in very vicious ways. Uh, they give 50 to 60% of the entire general budget of the city to police, uh, to police the black community out of existence, you know, to get these poor, uh, uh, you know, black people out of the way so that, you know, they can facilitate this gentrification process they long for. They, uh, you know, uh, pass legislation to allow spy planes to uh, hover over the black community and record everything we do for 18 hours. They uh, support, you know, things like this National Geospatial Spy Agency uh, that is responsible for dropping drones all over uh, the world, you know, black and brown people all over the planet. So that, you know, a capitalist economy, uh, white capitalist U.S. and European economies can uh, violate, you know, the uh, territory of other people around the world. And then they, you know, and, and they gave this entity nearly a thousand acres of land in order to facilitate that so that they can pursue their own political interests, their own economic interests and the interests of a small class of black people uh, in the name of, you know, doing it for black people. So we say explicitly for the people, create an opportunity for the majority of everyday workers, poor people, peasants, you know, to be able to participate in this and uh, to be able to create life for themselves. So organize your community, go to, uh, you know, community neighborhood association meetings, as Marissa stated, uh, and, you know, just organize your community and start where you are. Go ahead and start, you know, just organize uh, a committee and begin today and then reach out to the Uhuru Movement for a model, work with the Uhuru Movement or work under the leadership of the Uhuru Movement and the One Africa, One Nation Farmers Market so that we can take it to a city near you. Uhuru, Uhuru, yeah, thanks for that. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Tachara Masimba and Marissa Martinez. So we say down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. This has been the People's War Radio Show, produced by WVPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit on the planet, whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.